0: So sleep impacts our cognitive function, more specifically regarding workplace executive function. And executive function are mental skills associated with working memory, flexible thinking, and self-control. And diminished executive function leads to poor decision-making, lack of focus, following directions, and handling emotions.
1: Hello and welcome to Episode 69 of Chaos and Rocket Fuel, the Future of Work podcast. This is the podcast where we look at every aspect of work in the future. It's brought to you by Wonder and Pattern and uh, my co-host, sat across the ocean, is Claire Haydar, the CEO of Wonder and Pattern. Claire, this is the second time that we're chatting to Eric, uh, Eric Coram. What are we talking about today? Sleep, sleep, sleep. (laughs) And I
2: know it's actually a topic that interests you, Doug, because you, interestingly enough, have just recently watched a TED Talk by Matt Walker on the exact same topic. But I genuinely believe that sleep is one of the most underrated. And Eric, interestingly, agrees, as we see in this this episode, in terms of one of the most underrated work tools that can actually enable people to be better. And coming back to Eric's first episode with us, be able to achieve peak performance in work so a lot to delve into yeah
1: yes definitely i've actually changed my sleep patterns to become more in line with the ted talk that i saw and interestingly and not surprising eric mirrored a lot of what was said in that talk so let's catch up with eric you
2: did your phd in sleep yeah so talk to us about that how does it impact team outcomes
0: oh geez in every single way I studied sleep because I was working in athletic performance and I wanted to study something that we couldn't live without. Like you can't live without water, can't live without food, you can't live without sleep. And so I was like, okay, that seems like to be a really important thing. <laughs> and then I wondered how it impacted our ability to adapt to stress because in sport, I had this phrase, we wanted to create the most resilient and adaptable athletes that consistently obtain their performance potential. And what I mean by that is, is like the faster you can adapt to physical and psychological stress, the faster your skill improves. That's a, that's a heuristic. It works in the workplace and in athletes. Stress is a common signal. It's one signal. The brain does not differentiate between physical and psychological stress. And so I wanted to see was sleep, this wonder drug that, you know, I'd heard it to be and the answer was yes. So sleep impacts our cognitive function. More specifically, regarding workplace executive function. And executive function are mental skills associated with working memory, flexible thinking, and self-control. And diminished executive function leads to poor decision-making, lack of focus, following directions, and handling emotions. If you don't have adequate sleep, you're not going to make good decisions. And when you're sleep deprived, you don't engage in mood appropriate behaviors, So you can unintentionally be a total jerk. And when you're working with teams, like you want to be able to pick up and have emotional intelligence, but all these capabilities are diminished when you're sleep deprived. And so if I could improve one thing for our knowledge workers out there, it would be improve your sleep.
2: You said something really important there, which I don't think a lot of workplace designers, workplace architects, managers realize the faster a person is able to adapt to stress, the better you can perform. Mm -hmm. And if you look at like the general trend of what's happening in the workplace today, managers and employees themselves are actually trying to remove the stresses out of the workplace environment, which is totally counterproductive because from your lens – As a sports trainer, if you think about it, a peak athlete becomes a peak performance athlete by adding stresses into the training program. Yes. And so this whole concept of well-being being the diminishment of stress is something that myself and Tracy, my co-founder, actually have, like, we get so irritated with people about this topic because there's a very, very big movement amongst employees, but also... I O psychologists in that who are trying to diminish the stress out of the workplace. And it's not possible. It, it's totally counterintuitive to what peak performance, which is your whole area teaches us about the best work outcomes.
0: I mean, I built an entire company on this. Exactly. My company <laughs> aim seven is built on the idea of building adaptability. Adaptability yeah. is the capacity to handle more stress with less cost. So, there's something called allostasis. It's our body's desire to be at this homeostatic balance. And every system of the body is trying to achieve allostasis, biochemical, cardiopulmonary, like every system. When you induce a stress onto the body, there's what's called allostatic load, or it's the cost of adaptation. There's a cost, like you. If you go take on a really hard work project, there's a cost to the stress. What we should be thinking is, how do I create more capacity to do the same thing with less cost? And so I I picture it like this, like if you had a bowl in your hands and that small little bowl is all the stress that you can handle. And then I told you to walk across the room, it'd be like spilling over. But if I built this big, massive bowl and I poured the same amount of stress into it, like it's nothing. You could like run across the room and you'd be totally fine. That is what we should be working on developing and not, you know, unless there's long-term stress that's leading to some severe health issue, that's when you need to lower the temperature. Yeah, But otherwise, you need to work on improving capacity.
1: Eric, from my side, I just wanted to sort of go a little bit deeper into what you said. You started to sort of say some of the, benefits of good sleep and not enough sleep I want to ask you about you know what happens in our bodies when we sleep but what happens when we get enough sleep and what happens when we deprive ourselves of sleep
0: everything that happens in sleep has yet to be fully elucidated which as a scientist makes it exciting we're learning more and more like literally by the day but there's three big things that happen when you sleep. One, your brain detoxifies itself. There's a system called the glymphatic system. And this has only been discovered in the past, I think, 10 to 15 years. So you have the lymphatic system of your body. The glymphatic system has these what's called paravascular pathways in the brain. And when you sleep, it literally flushes out metabolic waste products. Some of these waste products are proteins associated with Alzheimer's and dementia called amyloid beta plaques. So our brain, you can literally see it's like like flushing crap out. So if you wake up in the morning, you didn't have a lot of sleep and you feel like your brain's full of crap, it probably is. The next thing that happens is your tissues heal. And so there are certain hormones that are released when we sleep, like growth hormone during slow wave sleep. Growth hormone is a hormone that enables us to heal our tissues. Also during REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, when people dream, your body is in a complete state of paralysis you cannot move. Two reasons for that. One, it, it allows for what we call myofibular restoration or your tissues can restore themselves because they have they don't have to do anything. Number two, have you ever had a crazy dream where like you were flying or jumped out of a building or something chased by a bear? If you weren't, in a state of paralysis, you could probably harm yourself. And so uh, there's rare cases where people actually wake up during REM sleep and are completely paralyzed. But the third thing, which I think really ties into our conversation today is this is where learning and memory consolidation occurs. So there's something called neuroplasticity or the brain's ability to modify itself in response to experience. And so when you learn something during the day, there's a series of things that happen. But like, let's say you were to sit down to work work on something really difficult. You kind of get agitated, right? You get this little frustration feeling and that's good. That's increases in adrenaline and norepinephrine, which bring alertness and bring your focus to like this really diffuse light. And then during this process, the neurons in your brain that are being used for learning get marked by a neuromodulator called acetylcholine. Choline goes out, And tabs these different neurons and said, hey, I use this to learn something new. And when you sleep, those neurological connections are strengthened. And there's a pair of uh, researchers, Tononi and Sorelli, that came up with this thing called the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis and actually proved it to be true. That during sleep, your brain is actually shrinking or expanding in different parts.
2: Wait, 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 wait. Stop there. This is really, really interesting. I need you to backtrack a little bit because I want (laughs) to make sure I'm understanding this. So your brain is sending out sensors that are essentially picking up on these new things and then bringing them back and that integration process is happening in sleep.
0: Yeah, so when you're working on something very difficult, trying to learn something, a yeah. neuromodulator, a chemical called acetylcholine, goes to the chemical in your brain. It's all in your brain. Okay. And it marks it, like puts a flag in ah, it and says like, okay. ah, Got it. I use this thing, th- these yeah. this ner- these neurological connections to do something really hard. I need to strengthen that today. Wow. When you sleep, though, those are strengthened and other neurological connections are selectively weakened Wow because if you it's like use it or lose it and because if your brain kept constantly expanding it would like blow up right so this is like wild stuff that I I, <laughs> I learned about when I was doing my dissertation but the finalization of learning and memory consolidation is sleep so if you bust your rear end all day learning and you don't get enough sleep you literally are not capitalizing. On all the work you did. Actually, MIT just did a study in the past year and a half that showed that students that went to bed earlier and were more consistent with their sleep leading up to exams, not the night before, but the month before, had better grades. And 25% of the variance was in grades was due to sleep alone. This is MIT. This is like not... wow dumb people and they were doing some really amazing things.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's like the best of the best.
0: The best of the best. You know, I went to A&M, Kentucky and Arkansas. So like, I would love to have gotten to MIT. I'm trying to hire people from MIT. But the point being is, you know, there's so many amazing things. If you don't get enough sleep, you're going to have a really hard time being your best. And people may be like, well, I like get six hours a night. I'm fine. You don't even know what fine is.
1: I've actually just seen a re- very recently a TED talk by Matt Walker where he talks about sleep as a superpower. So he was saying that you're, I was going to ask you what is, if six hours isn't enough, what is optimal? About eight hours.
0: National Sleep Foundation says seven to nine. Uh, if you're that person that's listening, you're like, I do great on five. I can almost 100% guarantee you you're not the person with the poly genetic polymorphism. It's like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent my research for my dissertation, without going too much into the neuroscience, we measure what's called DC potential the brain, which is a slow cortical potential, which represents the battery of the brain, literally in millivolts. It's like the overarching indicator of how all the systems of the body are adapting to stress. And we looked at this with elite football players in their season when they're under the most academic and physical stress, and we found that they needed seven and a half to nine hours to be in the best position to adapt. Now, these are the best of the best that are wired a little bit different than you and I. And that actually, you know, validated in a sense those recommendations. And we know that there's this U-shaped bell curve. People that sleep less than seven hours a night die (laughs) earlier. Their all-cause mortality increases, cardiovascular disease increases, and risk of diabetes, mellitus. I mean, you go on and on. Sleeping more than nine hours is the same outcome. Wow! Now, why could be be related to a whole host of factors. It could be that people that tend to sleep over nine hours maybe already have disease states or they're more bedridden, but we know that there's a U-shaped curve with seven and nine hours being the ideal duration.
2: Interesting. So, Eric, again, question that I want to ask you is specifically for every listener listening in, are we sleeping the way we should be sleeping? Because clearly there's, there's arts and science to this.
0: No, you know, I think recently it was, uh, there was a paper I read that that basically said that sleep is in a, we're in an epidemic with sleep right now. Like it's, it's, it's so bad. And I would say that most people listen to this podcast, like I, I don't feel as rested as I could when I wake up in the morning. I don't feel as energized at work. I wish I could sleep better. As a matter of fact, when I surveyed wearable technology users, the number one thing they wanted was more energy. Number two was to reduce, like if their device could do anything for them. You got to think about people that are wearing technology to improve behavioral outcomes. Number three was sleep. But if you think about the first one, more energy, it's tangent, It's related to sleep. Yes. Yeah, so no, we're not. And I think that goes to the habits that we have during the day that create the conditions for resting and fulfilling sleep.
2: Okay, so to wrap this piece up, because first of all, I need you (laughs) to write a book, Eric. Please write a book. (laughs) Pull that dissertation out and write a book for us. But that's another topic for another day. Give us the top three tips, you know, because naturally, you know, the hundreds of people listening to this are sleeping very differently, but what would you say are like the three most basic sleep hygiene things that we should be following on a daily basis?
0: Yeah, I'll give you a couple more than, a little more than three and I'll make it fast. One, the first thing you do in the morning is the most important thing related to your sleep at night. You must get natural light exposure as early as possible. So when you wake up in the morning, you should get as much light exposure as possible. So right now it's darker later into the morning. So get as much bright light exposure from your house. And then at least get 10 to 15 minutes of sun exposure. People are like, well, I can't, that's hard. Go out for five minutes, come back in. You know, because here's what happens. There are these special cells in your eyes called the melanopsin retinal ganglion cells. And this is this was recently discovered by Burson's lab at Princeton. And there's this thing that sits on the top of your roof of your mouth called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And it is the circadian pacemaker. So your circadian clock is this 24-hour clock, okay? And it's entrained by external things in the environment, meaning time givers from the environment. Uh, Light, temperature, humidity, there's other things. So when your eyes see this light, the special quality of light for the morning. It sends a signal to this little thing above the roof of your mouth that then sends a signal to every cell in your body that it's time to wake up. And it does that in a number of ways. But one of the things I want to highlight is it increases cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone. You want a massive spike in cortisol in the morning because that increases alertness. Then a little clock is set off in your head that 12 to 16 hours later to increase melatonin, which makes you sleepy at night. And it all goes back to the first thing you do in the morning. So if you do anything from this podcast, try to get at least 10 minutes of, and it's 50 times less effective looking through a window.
2: That was going to be my next question. So no, no windows. I
0: knew it. I could see it. No windows. (laughs) No windows. You (laughs) got to go outside. And right now it's raining in Houston and it's terrible. So I literally just stood on my porch this morning. And some days it doesn't, you know, it can't happen every day, but if it's cold, I don't care. Put on a jacket and go stand on your porch. You will feel better. Two weeks later, you will feel better. Number two, if you drink caffeine, try to start tapering off by no later than two o'clock because the half-life of caffeine, I think is like five or six hours. And so when you go to bed, if you've had that last cold brew at five, you're still going to be awake because there's a chemical called adenosine that accumulates during the day. It's It creates a pressure for sleep. What caffeine does is it competes with adenosine and it pushes back on adenosine. So caffeine doesn't actually give you energy. It's an adenosine blocker so you feel alert. Then when the caffeine wears off, you crash. So nothing wrong with caffeine. It can be used in very appropriate ways. I drink coffee every day. So stop by roughly two o'clock, and the last thing is when you go to bed, make your room cold, dark, and quiet like a cave. Cold less than 70 degrees. Dark, if light is an alerting signal, it's an alerting signal at any time of the day so make your room as dark as it can and quiet. If you're in a city, use a white noise maker. I use a white noise maker. actually I use a cool little app called Endel. Um, it makes these beautiful AI soundscapes that attach to my Apple watch. So my wife, my wife and I love it. like it makes it's the coolest little noises and it changes <laughs> throughout the night and it's like it like just whisks us off into sleep. So cold, dark and quiet are a consistent tone.
2: Eric, you know my husband, so I have to share the story with you. On our very first date ever, he sat me down and he was like, before we even order starters or main course or dessert for this dinner, I have got a series of questions to ask you.
0: Oh my goodness.
2: (laughs) And if I tell you what the first question is, you'll nearly fall over. So I'll skip over the first question. The second question he asked me was, what is your best and optimal temperature? And I was like, "Well, I'm I'm really comfortable at around you know 72 degrees, kind of like a 22, 20 to 4, you know, 22, yeah, yeah. 24 Celsius, 72 degrees." He was like, "We won't be able to date, and we definitely will not be able to get
0: married one day." <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I was like what do you mean this is like literally like date number one like what are you on about? why did
0: you stick with this guy he he he, i mean i love (laughs) mark he's an amazing individual but like this is crazy so yeah
2: let me just tell you where he went with this he was like unless the house is going to be a consistent 67 to 68 degrees celsius and dropping down to like 66 at night we can't like proceed in this relationship. And he actually, we, we had to draw up an operational agreement (laughs) that captured this.
0: Okay. You know, there's technology now where you can like regulate the temperature of your bed on both sides. So this is like a mute point now.
2: Uh, Trust me. That was like one of the first things I bought (laughs) in our relationship (laughs) because I was like, I need to live with this man. But to your point, So I never really used to struggle with sleep, but it was so interesting to see how my sleep performance increased when we made the room colder than it had been before. So
1: totally buy into what you're saying.
0: Love it. This is a great story.
1: And that is where we draw a line today. If you've missed the first part of our conversation about peak performance and how it affects the future of work, you can check it out on Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts or on Wonder's website, W N D Y R. Com. We'll conclude our chat with Eric shortly. But for now, from Claire and myself, we'll see you soon.